I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 138 of the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the show, we hear from Barry Kane, another key player in this incredible story arc, as from the tail end of the 70s to the beginning of the 90s, Barry was a music journalist, publisher, and PR man. He joined Record Mirror at the end of 1976, the start of the punk explosion, and was perfectly placed to both take part in and report on the punk scene. Barry was viewed as an insider by the bands of the time. His access was unrivaled, so much so that if you flip to the back sleeve of your Modern World album by The Jam, you'll see a credit to Barry. Special thanks to Mr. B. Kane, Teenage Blue. More on that in our podcast chat. We'll hear about his first jam gig at the Hope and Anchor, to the band's first nationwide tour, travels across Europe, magazine reviews, gigs, singles, albums, of course, interviews galore, including the band's very final one. And we'll also hear how in 1980, together with writer Tim Lotz, he launched Flexi Pop Magazine, a publication which featured a flexi disc on the cover of each issue the most bizarre pop music magazine ever published. Standout features include Paul Weller as a TV critic, revealing his nasty habits, a photo history of the jam, and even Paul Weller in bondage. You're going to love this episode. Flexi pop, record mirror, punk, the jam, Weller, and more. We'll also dig into some of the incredible stories from his brilliant book, 77 Sulfate Strip and 57 Varieties of Talk Soup. Both massively recommended, loads of incredible stories, and even in one of them, a brand new 30-page interview with with Paul Weller. Let's get into it. Barry Kane, thank you for joining me. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I think every, I was listening to them before and everyone was saying that, so I thought I'd better join that as well. Everybody so, seems very excited about coming on. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like people are feeling left out if they've not been invited. Right. <laughs> hey, look, I'm really excited about speaking with you because you were right amongst it. I mean, from bang early days as well, you were in there, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> that does make me old. 
the first time I um I, I met them. I never actually. The first time I met them was at a party, and it was um a guy called Jeff Dean, who I'm sure you've come across in your travels with this podcast. He was their PR at Polydor, and he was this real bluff uh, Canadian guy, and it, he was such a lovely bloke. He had a heart of gold, but he could put his foot in it and say things in inappropriate moments, and he was a hoot. Anyway, myself and my girlfriend at the time became my wife and his wife. He lived over in Wandsworth Way or somewhere over there. And we went to a party. He used to have parties and we go over there. This particular evening, we're all having a nice time. And then all of a sudden, these three guys came in. They all dressed quite smartly, but they were all a bit pissed. And uh, Jeff said, uh, oh, these, this is a guy that, uh, these are the band that we're just about to sign at Polydor. I said, oh, yeah. They told me their name and it just, I thought, what a shit name. You know, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the jam I thought oh no chance yeah we've had marmalade and now we've got the jam what's it going to be so um and then uh, they proceeded to drink. They came empty-handed and they drank everything around it. There was a, I brought a nice bottle of wine. That went. They drank the light. And they got even more pissed. Then they all went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought, what an obnoxious bastards. Yeah, horrible buggers. So that was it. So anyway, about two months later, Jeff said, oh, we've signed this band. I'd completely forgotten about it. You know? And uh, Jeff said, we've signed this band. Come and see them at the Hope and Anchor. So I went to the Hope and Anchor, and there must have been about you know thirty people, forty people maximum there, and they just signed them. I thought, oh dear, there's not many people here. I'm, you know, this isn't it could be a bit of a bad signing. And then they played, and then from that moment, I just fell in love with them. I just knew that they were going to do something, but you know, in those days, there were so many. There were some really good bands, but there was a lot of rubbish around as well. But they stood out. It was like I'd seen the. Clash and the Damned and the Pistols and everything up until that moment. This would have been about March, April 77, because they just signed Polydor. And it, yeah. it was like uh, punk wrapped up in a, in a, in a mohair suit, you know, with, with like a, a razor inside one pocket and a condom in the other. It, it was just, <laughs> and it, you know what I mean? It, 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 it was more than punk. It was, so, you know, it had the energy and the drive, you know, and the excitement of punk, but it was a bit more melodic, a bit more guitar based, as you said, you know, and, uh, and the way they moved around and the, the, the leaping, the who like leaping and everything. It was great. The next time I saw them was at the Royal Academy, and that was Royal Academy of Art, was it? And that was about two or three weeks later, and I saw them play, um, and it was quite busy. And then they had the um, Union Jack. They used to have a Union Jack, a great big Union Jack behind them when they played. So I, that's when I, I said in the review, that particular review, which was a, this was the second time I'd reviewed them, that the Union Jack uh, reminds me of the different moods that a jam uh, show will take you through. And uh, uh, it was like red hot, expanding into white heat, contracting into teenage blue. That was anyway... Wrote that, bang, bang, bang. And that was it. And then, of course, see, I, I was working on Record Mirror then. I was on staff at Record Mirror then. Early on, no one wanted to touch punk. I joined Record Mirror in November 76. So punk, I didn't know much about it then. I worked on a local newspaper, the South East London Mercury in Deptford, I, as the entertainment editor uh, at the time. Um, I just got my dentures on a pa- an evening paper out in Gloucester. So I came back. I'd started a music, a pop column on the paper in Gloucester. So then w- when I came back, I got a job at the entertainment manager. Got to know a guy called um, Alan Edwards, who was a, now one of the biggest PR guys in the country with the outside organisation. And back then, he used to work for a guy called Keith Altham, who was a, a, a top 
hot PR at the time, and they did the, every they did the Who and they did loads of different uh, bands. And I got to know Alan on the phone, and he said, "Oh, we're just starting doing this band called the Stranglers," and that was at Dingwalls. He said, "Why don't you come and see them?" This was in the summer of '76, and I didn't know anything about punk, you know. And I went down, and I thought they were going to be rubbish, but they were, you know, really good. And then I interviewed Hugh Cornwall backstage for the South East London Mercury. That's what it was called by paper weekly. While I was interviewing him backstage, Jean-Jacques Bunnell and Paul Simonon were having a bust-up in the bar <laughs> and a, a real fight. I missed that. Yeah, they were having a real big fight. There was Malcolm McLaren there, Vivian West. They, you know, they were all, all sort of bunked in, I think. So when I went, I thought, well, they're pretty good, but this is all a bit of a hype. So then when I, I joined Record Mirror, and no one wanted to talk about punk. So um, I said, well, I saw Strangers. I thought they were quite good. So then they said, well, the, se- the Sex Pistols have just been signed by EMI, and they're bringing out this record called Anarchy in the UK. Do you want to go and interview the band? So I said, yeah, yeah I thought was, I hadn't heard the record at the time. It would just come out, and it was uh, it was two days I think before the Bill Grundy interview. All right, uh, <laughs> all right. So I went, I went up to Manchester Square EMI. There were newspaper journalists there, and they're waiting to be to interview, and they were shaking with fear. They were so frightened of this band. It was really funny. So I then I thought, oh, this is a big hype, you know. And I was fleetingly introduced to Malcolm McLaren, who said hello, and then went was somewhere. So then I was ushered into a room, and it was just me and Johnny Rotten, as he was then. So it was just me and him. He was sitting on the floor, and I started talking to him, and uh, it turned out that we're both from Islington, born and bred. Grew up in Islington, Arsenal fans and everything. So that was a plus for me. And then we got on, got on really well and did the interview. And then two days later, it all shut. But that was the front page of, of Record Mirror. And that was in uh, December 76, I think, the actual front page came out. So that was my introduction to punk. And then I heard Anarchy in the UK. And I thought, this is phenomenal. What? I can't wait. I've never heard anything like it. Then I'd, The Damned and, and uh, The Clash I'd seen and, and, and interviewed them. But I, the, the jam were quite new kids on the block. Even, you know, all the others had been signed up until then. And I'd, I'd seen them all live as well and when I hadn't seen the chat before but as I say they were something different I did this review then we organised um, myself and Jeff organized the first interview with the jam for record mirror which i was to do we organized them getting these union jack jackets from a boutique in uh, carnaby street so we went down to carnaby street i met them up in this boutique which has become an iconic picture now hasn't it yeah yeah so we had so we got them we got them in the thing and everything and we got the photographer there and, and then we got in a cab and we went round to all the all the places in london buckingham palace the house of westminster all different uh, thing and then uh i think it was uh, it was on the cover of record mirror it was the front of the pa- uh, was it west uh, government builder yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah it was yeah yeah it was and that was my first interview with them and it was when they were changing they said i thought they'd hired them but i spoke to Rick Buckler a few months back. He said, no, no, we kept them. But I, I could have sworn we'd hide them for the day. So they kept them. They, they had a result there. Fair play. They must be worth a fortune, those jackets, if they've kept them. So anyway, they, because they were everywhere. It went that pictures everywhere. So anyway, I did the interview in the, this first interview with them, and, and it was really funny. The two, every, they're just getting changed and everything, and they're talking. But Paul, you can see, was the main man, even though he was young. But it, it, it was fascinating because he was kind of, he was so unsure of his opinions. He was so young. And you could see, but he was just like, 
he wasn't a loud mouth or anything. He'd, he'd see he was thinking about, he thought about things a lot, you know. And yet, if you know what, he, you know, his background was and everything, you thought, well, wait, when did he think? Because he did yeah. shit at school, he wasn't interested. And it was funny because that interview was done in the shadows of Marlborough Street Magistrates Court which is at the end of Carnaby Street, which was my very first job in journalism. I was a trainee court reporter in this old Victorian magistrate's courts. I only found out a few years ago that I worked for an agency in the court and I only found out that the office I worked in, Charles Dickens worked in the same office there. I <laughs> know, oh, and I never knew. No one ever, t- it was amazing. And then it opened up as a boutique, it's a boutique hotel now called the Courthouse. And a coincidence, I got invited to the opening thing. I don't know why. That was amazing. such a coincidence. I got a moment to the thing. But yeah, so it was funny that here I am, you know, a few years ago, I was sitting out looking at Carnaby Street, having a fag on the steps of the courthouse, you know. Now here I am with the jam, who were brand new, but you knew they were going to be something. And it was just, a, it was just surreal, really. That gave me sort of, the, you know, that, again, something about them that, that I fell in love with. The fact that it brought some, you know, uh, some of my past back to me there. So many people have said on chat to me about, you know, I mentioned that we were, we were going to be chatting on the podcast. So many people connected with me and said that they thought you seem to be one of the writers, one of the very few writers from that time who managed and probably actually throughout most of Paul's career, really, but certainly from that time who kind of managed to get close to the band, get close to Paul particularly. Yeah. Because yeah. Gary Crowley and I talked about this. He could be a prickly bugger, right? Oh, Gary Crowley. <laughs> <laughs> probably as well, but I didn't mean Weller, but yeah, sorry, Gary. You're telling that from me. <laughs> But people said to me, your interviews with Weller were always worth reading. Oh, that's very nice. Was that my wife told you that? (laughs) She had got in touch, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's because he felt guilty that he nicked my bloody wine at that party. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, because I, I genuinely liked him. And I could see where he was coming from. And I understood I could see Harry could get through it. You know, I, I have, it wasn't that long before I met Paul. I was a teenager. So you knew those feelings and he captured that. You know, he really did in, in his music. I felt privileged to be involved in understanding what he was doing then. But um, we weren't, you know, I wouldn't ring him up and say, coming out for a drink or anything. I never did that with any few of the bands, although I did invite them to my wedding, which was in 1980. Well, I invited Bruce and I said to Bruce, I'd seen Bruce and I said, Bruce, I'm, it wasn't a planned thing. It was a, a week. We got married within a week. It's a long story, which I won't go into, but we had to get married within a week in London. And, and I used to see the band around. I saw Bruce and I said, look, can you tell the others to please come along to the wedding? Anyway, uh, he, uh, he didn't, but he came with Pat, Pat Stead, who was such a lovely girl and she worked at you know, CBS and uh, he came along. And the next time I saw Paul, he said, why didn't you invite me to my little fucking wedding? <laughs> what? I said, well, I, I said, but, you know, I did. I put Bruce, he said, well, Bruce never told me. And Bruce apologized and said, oh, I did, you know, I did tell you. So I always thought after that, we were, it was never the same. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nonsense because the amount of crazy things you got him to do in the, in the 80s oh, for, well, was, for your yeah. next venture was amazing. And we will get on to that. I mean, you were there so much between, through that story of not just the jam, but right throughout those punk years and then into yeah. what came next. But I read somewhere that you said, whilst punk might, may have started in 1976, 
1976. It mattered in 1977, which I loved as a quote. I thought it was because you had all these incredible debut albums. You mentioned the Sex Pistols, you know, you had Nevermind. Every, every single the, band the, had their Yeah, the Clash album. in the City, all that kind of thing. And this idea of, this has come up on the podcast before, this kind of idea that this generation was suddenly getting their own music. It was their own thing. But you said about the fact that, you know, we just got lucky. This, yeah. this was a really exciting, inspirational, dangerous thing is what you were talking about, weren't you? I feel so lucky. I really do, as you, as you say, to have joined Repul Mira in 90, at the end of 76, gone through that whole year of 77, just on a cloud. It was an absolute knockout. And uh, although at the time you didn't realize as, as much as you, I mean, it was a job still. It was my job. Yeah, but, how, but how you managed to do the job when you're gigging every night and, and some of the time you're, you're off your face, let's be fair. No. What are you insinuating, man? <laughs> but you managed to churn out the articles and the reviews and what Christ knows how, man. But that was it. I mean, speed was the drug of punk, you know, and uh, it kept everyone going for days at a time. You know, that was, it, was, it was cheap. It was cheaper than cocaine. And someone told me the other, the most amazing thing about cocaine is that in 1976-77, it was £60 a gram. And a, the price today is £60 a gram. Really? Yes. Inflation has an impact <laughs> in whatsoever. Isn't that incredible? Oh, yeah, that's an incredible stat. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, this all sounds so exhausting. I mean, it does sound brilliant, don't get me wrong. But now but now I've got kids, I mean, with forces, whatever. It's like, bloody hell, it sounds exhausting, Christ. <laughs> I know, I know. It, but, it, yeah, but you you just lift off the adrenaline, you know. It was, um, it, it, it was such a privilege to have seen those bands at the beginning. But in, in a way, bands that came after that, I had to keep comparing to them and I lost interest. I mean, you know, for me, the essence of punk was when it finished in 78, when the Pistols split up, that first wave of punk. Then you had other waves and some really good bands, but whatever. I mean, like The Damned, who had the first punk single and the first punk album. Uh, New Rose was it came out in 76, before Anarchy in the UK. And uh, the album, Damn, 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 Nothing, that was March, April. Um, I remember seeing them and, uh, you know, they, they all had their ways, these bands, like the Damned were the, the zany kind of true punk band. I was fortunate enough to go to the States. They were the first UK band to tour to go to America. And I went to, it was my first time and their first time to America, to New York. That was April 77. Uh, and they did four nights of CBGBs in 77. And that was <laughs> it's just crazy. You know, the fact that they are the craziest band. They were the most unpredictable band you could ever wish. It. Captain Sensible, you just did not know what he was going to do. But actually going to New York and seeing it then in 77, it was, it was an incredible experience. It was like, you know, the French connection, Kojak, everything was there. And it was exactly like that. Yeah, exactly like that. The, you know, the steam coming up from the subway through the thing. It was just incredible. And to go there with the damned, I never in a million years dreamed that I'd end up going there so, you know, to a place like that and spending that week with them. On the plane going over, they were like kids in the sweet shop, you know, they're going to America. And on the plane going over, I was sitting next to um, a guy called Don Mousseau, who was the uh, PR for Stiff Records. They were on Stiff, the dam. And they were paying for my trip to New York. And the trips I'd been on before in Europe with, other, with all the big record companies who stayed in like five-star hotels, room service, the lot, and you didn't have to, you know, the bar, the mini bar, and just knock it 
absolutely <laughs> rotten to pieces. And it was all on the house. You know, record companies were awash with money then. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting next to Dom and so, and we're on the plane. We haven't discussed it before. So I said, where am I staying? In New York, in which hotel? He said, well, we, we haven't managed, we haven't actually got you a hotel. So I said, well, where? He said, well, actually, it's a mate of mine's putting you up on his couch <laughs> for a week in New York. He, he lived in Manhattan and he only had one bedroom flat. I couldn't believe it. But the trouble was we had this great lifestyle and everything, but you weren't paid much. I didn't have, I had hardly any money on me. You know? I thought I'm going to be, because I thought I was going to get all my food yeah, and yeah, yeah. at the hotel. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I went to, uh, I, I really racked my brains, and I, I did this once before. It's a terrible thing to admit. But I went and sat next to Rat Scapies and said, look, Rat, I'm going to do a, a lottery thing. I'm doing a raffle. I'm going to go to everyone on the plane, every passenger, and they've got to write down the time they think our wheels will touch, the plane's wheels will touch Kennedy JFK Airport. So he said, yeah. So I said, I'm going to get a dollar or a pound off of each passenger if I can, and I'm going to write it down. And I said, Rat, and you're going to win it. And he went, <laughs> he said, he said, okay. And then I said, and then we, sh- we share it 50 50. He said, all right then. So I went around to all the passengers. I got the air steward there. I don't know where this is cut. I got the, the flight attendants to go up and they were getting it and collecting money for me and giving me the money. And then the pilot got involved and said, Hey, I understand there's a, there's a, you'd there's hope a he would know the answer. On. There's a raffle going on and bloody, bloody, blah. And then we got there and we landed. And the minute we landed, the pilot came on and said, and the time now for all you people is... And I've looked through and you know, no, no one was going to get it dead. I said, it's got to be the closest to it. And it was there was someone who was like only about two seconds out or something. And I went, I went oh, and the winner is Rat Scabies. <laughs> <laughs> so we went outside and we, I think we got about 200 or three, you know, quick between 1977 was a fair few bulb and we parried it up. And then I saw him yes, many years later for my book when I was interviewing, I wanted to do interviewing for a book of mine. And um, we met in the ship in Wardour Street, which was the place everyone went to before you went to the marquee. And uh, we met there for, uh, for, uh, for lunchtime drink. He said, the first thing he said, he said, I just want to thank you for that. He said, because I had no money. He said, <laughs> and he said, that was, that was great. That's a brilliant, what a brilliant scam. I love it. Oh my goodness me. I mentioned about the fact that you were there throughout so much of this. Let's kick into some of these gigs. So you were there, the Jam's first headlining tour. So this is, we'll come back to the album in the city in a second, but this is June 1977. June the 7th, 1977. See, people like you, this this means so much that you remember the actual dates of all these things. Well, it was the Queen's Jubilee and it was the opening night of then First Nationwide Tour and it was at Barbarella's. In, uh, in Birmingham. And on that same night, the Sex Pistols famous boat trip up the Thames. That was the same night as the Jam opened their very first nationwide tour. Yeah, amazing. Remember it well. Funny, isn't it? Even God, it's years ago, isn't it? 45, 46 years ago nearly. Yeah, quite something, you know, quite something. And an incredible thing for them because by that time, actually, they've been a band for, what, five, six years? You know, oh, we- yeah. A long I mean, time. They weren't overnight yeah. successes by far no. from it. You know? No, and they're playing like all round Woking and all that. But at this point, you know, it's starting to hit the big time. The album's been out and we'll talk about in the city, the album in a second. But you're also at the Battersea gig at the end of that tour as well, weren't you? Yes. Yes, I was. I did, um, was it the three nights for 
of charity or something. Was it? Was that the one? I didn't. Okay, you're talking about Battersea Town Hall gig. Yeah, or, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was. Yeah, it was. A, it was a, a special thing they did. I did. I went to three dates. I think in a, in a week or with them or something. Yeah, the Battersea Town Hall gig. Yeah, God. And one of the things I love about it, and I love about like the music papers generally of like live performance you don't see so much of like reviews of live gigs these days but that power of the written word to take you there and i'm going to read you something you wrote about that gig right um, oh, which God. i just <laughs> well, no, no, it's brilliant because it does you said right, paul weller and bruce foxen stand apart like two speakers shuddering under the impacts of burning watts with drummer rick butler providing the channel split there's no stereo hype and I was like, oh, I love it. So what you say on in paper, you really select the language you're going to use. You you paint pictures. That's really important. It, you're not just dialing this in and getting no, something across a, the desk of the editor. I'm a very you, big thesaurus. <laughs> <laughs> got me by. It's my Bible. But no, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that, that was from the Battersea gig. Yeah. God. I'd also been on the road with them in Germany that year, I seem to recall, which was, I don't know if that was before. No, it was after, that was after the Battersea gig. Yeah. Yeah. When they, it was just before This Is The Modern World came out, the album. That's right. Cause it was uh, just off the back of the US tour. And we must talk about like why they didn't really crack the US. Cause you mentioned going there with the dams and stuff. It'd be interesting to get your opinion, but yeah, you went to, um, Dachau to the concentration camp with the jam, didn't you? Yeah. That was on the German tour. They, they, they played. It was funny, funny tour. We, the first night was, um, I got there the day before the first gig, which was in Stuttgart. And they had to cancel it. <laughs> no one, they couldn't. Well, nobody turned up. Ticket. No, they didn't sell any ticket. They couldn't sell a ticket. One man and his dog, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, they put it down to the lack of communications and this, that, and the other. But, yeah, I suppose they just weren't that well known then. This was, you know, this was early, early ish, 77. Um, and then the next gig was in Munich, but we had a day to spare. So we went to the Dachau, the concentration camp, which was. <laughs> Well, I mean, it obviously had quite a profound effect on Paul because he wrote Goes to Dachau, didn't he, in the Style Council there. But, um, I, yeah, remember vividly walking around, walking around the camp with Paul and, uh, and, and looking, peering into the ovens and the, it sent shivers down his spine. It was terrifying. And I remember Paul sort of wandered off on his own for a while uh, and uh, very pensive, you know. It really did have a, uh, an effect on us. Uh, and then we then we got in the in the van and um, drove off, and they played me the tape of "This Is the Modern World." They, the, no one had heard it before except them, and they would we listen to each song, which was sad. But Paul, after that, he was very quiet for the the rest of the time I was there on that tour. Yeah, he was very quiet. I think it really did affect him. These experiences, this access you had. Is, and I know it's early days for the band, but this does continue right throughout the band's lifetime as well. This isn't they're a fledgling band, so, so you're able to get the access easier. You get that all the way through, which is remarkable. But let's talk about In the City. So let's talk about the music, the output, the albums, and this is the modern world as well. What did the music on record mean to you? Because it's quite hard to capture that kind of live performance in the studio, isn't it? That energy. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, but they did. Funnily enough, that's a good point. They did manage to capture that energy on that album. It was really raw. It was rough, you know, uh, um, but in a good way. 
It, not like, for example, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers debut album, which was fan- fantastic songs, but the production was appalling. That really hindered uh, uh, sales. But within the city, I mean, you know, it, let's face it, it was they, they, they were coming on the back of punk. They were using that as a springboard, um, even though they were around long before the, all those bands were themselves, you know, but they weren't playing that kind of music. It's only when Paul went to the um, punk festival at uh, the 100 Club. Uh, in 76, uh, it changed what his perception of how he wanted a band to be. Uh, and that was the change. So because of his love for the Beatles and the, quite a lot of music, they were quite a musical family, actually, the Wellers. They could all play. The dad could play the piano. The mum could play. Uh, Nicky, you know, they, they could all play. He had that melody in him. He was playing working man's clubs and playing old Beatles songs and this. And I think, you know, he he is a, a songwriter. He wasn't a punk writer. He was a songwriter. And that came through. So even though they had to give it some balls, you know, to put some bollocks into the in, into the sound, uh, something like Away From The Numbers, you know, on that. It's, it's such a classic song. It's complex. And, you know, mm-hmm. instead of the old three chord wonder coming out there, they were they were coming out with interesting melodies and and, and, and the lyrics were... Not like, you know, the, a lot of the other punk lyrics, which would destroy this or, you know, bang, bang, bang. And there was some tenderness in it as well. You know, there was, there was, there was feeling. There was, there was hate. Yeah, there was hatred and, and despair and, and just in the lyrics. And this was a kind of poetic soul here. It was just something different mm. and that I'd never, I'd never heard before. I'd, ne- I'd really had. It was like a new kind of soul. You know, it really was a, a, a new kind of soul for me. I mentioned on Twitter that you were coming on and um, Alex McLaughlin, who's a big fan of the podcast, um, asked him about Mr. Teenage Blues and does he still get a kick out of that credit? So we're talking about This Is The Modern World, which was also 1977. So two albums in one year from the jam. I mean, ridiculous, really, when you think about it. But there's a mention for you, B. Kane, and then Miss, they're calling you Mr. Teenage Blue. And so you're actually getting a credit on the album, for goodness sake. I know, I know. It's great, though, <laughs> isn't it? Well, I, I mentioned the story earlier, didn't I? With uh, yeah. It was at the Royal, Royal Academy of Art, the actual review the the gig uh and as i say that was nothing i I wrote that never heard any more from it and then i got the album over when a a review copy of the album and i looked at the bag you you see here mr b kane teenage blue and uh i was shocked he never gave me any royalties yeah he must own me a school (laughs) kid I've got to get on the blower to him and tell him that. Forget, every time I see him, I forget to mention it. I'll do it next time. But yeah, um, yeah it was such a, I got such a kick out of that. It was great. You know, my name there on a jam album. It's, it's, uh, it's quite an honour. Yeah, and, pro- and on the cover as well. This is not like hidden in the inside slip or whatever. This is on the back cover, isn't it? I know, I know. He would have put Barry, but he forgot my first name because I didn't remember it was a B. Oh, that's less impressive, yeah. <laughs> and I may say that Life from a Window is, I think, no bias there, the best track on the album. I, don't, I couldn't disagree. I don't, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Let's talk studio as well, because you've actually been in the studio with the jam. There was, I mean, probably a number of times, but I know that certainly about all around the world you were in the studio when they were creating that single, weren't you? It was Air that's Studios? Right, that, was at, uh, that was at Oxford Circus, wasn't it? That was at the, uh, yeah, that was, that was that same time as the Battersea gig. I, I sort of spent the week with them, that week with them, really. And I went up to, I think it was that week, Bruce had a bag with him and uh, we went through the contents of it. It was amazing. <laughs> I should dig that out. I've got it here somewhere. I, I, it was. Uh, I'll tell you. God, it's like it's like a diary list of your life when you look at <laughs> Oh, here we are. Battersea, Bond Street, and York. Oh, I went to York with them as well. God, all in that same week. Yeah, I've 
got it. I'm sure it was, uh, yeah, all in the same week. Uh, here we are. Come with me now into Bruce Foxton's bag. <laughs> Hidden beneath the control panel, at the uh, this is the Air Studios of Oxford Circus, where they were doing it. What have we here? Well, there was a large tube of Colgate, spray-on relief for legs, <laughs> orange vitamin C tablets, Kiwi Guard liquid polish for children's shoes, Clearasil for spots, Capriton nasal congestion tablets, Dequadin throat lozenges, silver crin pine herb shampoo, normal hair, arid roll-on, extra effective, few, <laughs> Vicks wild cherry lozenges, trio mink guitar tablets, otravine nasal spray, and a toothbrush. <laughs> That was amazing, wasn't it? I just remembered that. There's a lot of stuff in the bag to keep it all going, like keep his, keep his nasal keep passages, going, yeah. keep he the throat could, going. He could live in studios for months without that. One of the things that really stuck out about me to me as well about the writing was there was one phrase you said, and you said um, with the jam, you said, you just have to see them, that's all. <laughs> And this statement, <laughs> so and damn it, I mean, I'm never going to have that experience. We were talking before the podcast started recording. Obviously, you know, this wasn't my time period, sadly. But, my God, if I could get into a time machine, you'd be in a jam gig, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. You try and sort of think the best jam gig you saw. I, I liked the small clubs, you know. I think I saw them in the Roxy, definitely at the Hope and Anchor. One of the most amazing things to me is is the um, their last gig was in... Brighton, wasn't it? I was at the conference, the conference center, wasn't it? The Brighton Conference Center, I think it is. That's right. Yeah. And I was there that night. I saw, I'd seen them at Wembley the previous week, one of the gigs, the last gig they did at Wembley uh, Arena. And then I saw the last gig at 82. But that was quite a night. That was quite a mixed emotions for that night. I mean, because you've been there throughout the whole story. So you've seen the, and I must ask you about this, the, the US. Did you go to the US with the jam? Or no, did you see, no, I never what, went to the US. Why do you think that? they ne- didn't really crack that market? They were too English. I think obviously they're always compared with like the Who, but the Who weren't, you know, they they weren't that, you know, they were they were quite international kind of big heavy metal kind of band. But the Jam weren't, were they? They don't go on and do long guitar solos. They weren't punk. They wore suits. They couldn't categorize them. The Americans, you know, they they really couldn't understand where this was coming from. I mean, the most successful punk band was, I suppose, the Clash in America. They had at least had a top ten hit, didn't they, with Rock the Casbah, but. The two coasts, the West and the East Coast, there's always be following there, but that whole middle bit, no, they weren't going to crack that kind of thing. So they, they could, I mean, I, I know Paul still does tour America, doesn't he? He still does the odd, he still does the odd tour. I don't know what kind of venues he'd be playing there now. I wonder if he'd be sort of bigger in America now than he was with the jam. Yeah, maybe. And I think again, it's East Coast, West Coast type thing rather than kind of across, across the board, isn't it? There's a couple of things as well around. There was a mention of Setting Suns I found as well through the research. So this was 1979, the album release. And I don't know right. if this is a literal thing or a, a metaphoric thing, but you were saying about he hits me with his rhythm stick every time I meet him. And I was like, I was like, <laughs> Well, this doesn't sound very nice. Why am I <laughs> Is this an actual no. thing he's carrying around, bashing Barry no. with? <laughs> it's like a carry-on quote, there, isn't it? <laughs> but you, there was this bit where you were in Brighton just chatting away. And the fact that Weller was not talking to the big newspapers, they didn't have access to him. And he was a huge, by 79, 80, he's huge. He's a massive star. But actually, you've got this access. 
yeah, it, that was great. Uh, that, that was great. They couldn't, it wouldn't do national papers at all. I'd left Record Mirror. I went into, funny enough, PR for a little while with Alan Edwards. We worked out of a squat in Common Garden, James Street, and we did the PR for the Stranglers, Blondie, the Buzzcocks, Generation X. We were doing it for all the new wave artists uh, at the time. And it wasn't for me, PR. I, I, I hankered back after journalism. Though I did organise it while working with Alan. I organised a trip to Iceland with the Stranglers to promote their Black and White album. I, myself and Alan, we did it together, and we organised this whole trip for about 20 journalists and various people to fly over and spend three days in in Iceland to see the the vampire. So that was my big PR and that was that was one of the strangest three days you'll ever see. You'll ever <laughs> ever honestly. I imagine that was pretty messy, right? Oh, oh the stranglers were you see again it wasn't like that with the jam. You you went out with the jam, you you wouldn't get into the scrapes that you could get involved in with a band like the Stranglers or the Damned, you know, the Stranglers. I've been in death Death circumstances. It was just incredible what, what <laughs> they would get up to. The whole succession of Hell's Angels and you, you know, you're surrounded with guns and, oh, so you didn't get that on a jam tour. <laughs> you know, would get Rick Buckler in the back room after, I remember after that Barbarella's gig, I went backstage and they just kind of stage and Rick Buckler down two bottles of bull's blood, you know, the Hungarian red wine. Right. Two bottles he downed. After that gig, <laughs> that was it, and that was their first headlining gig. Yeah, you know, head, as a headline tour gig. Yeah, amazing. So <laughs> that just shows you the pressure. So it just shows you the pressure, though. Yeah, mind you, they were a band for drinking. They weren't a druggy band, like you know, a lot of the others were. You know, uh, uh, as I say, speed and you know, all that. that that's all that there was, really. Unless you were Johnny Thunders and you tried to get heroin and you couldn't, and you got Collis Brown's cough mixture and drank <laughs> bottle after bottle after bottle of that because that oh, was supposed to take got to a high. <laughs> and uh, but the jam were drinkers, uh, really were. Dream. Paul loved to drink, you know, really did. That night, that one you were talking about when we, we were sitting in the hotel, I was working, f- uh, doing stuff for the evening news, uh, the old London evening news. And uh, I went down there to interview, uh, to see the band playing Brighton and then to do an interview with Paul. And it, it, Paul was hard to get hold of for some reason afterwards or whether, but I persevered anyway. He finally came to my room, I think, um, and we had a bottle of whiskey, we had a bottle of scotch or something, and we and we were talking and drinking and whatever, and then he, he went and a dawn had come up. And, uh, and the next day, John had a, such a go at me. But he said, boy, I told you he couldn't do it. And we, he, really had, <laughs> he really laid into me. But uh, it's an element of trust. As well, you know, they know you're not going to stitch them up, and they know they're always going to get a five star review from me anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think that helps a lot. Is that trust, and also the fact that I didn't, I wasn't a kind of hanger on type. You know, I didn't, I didn't hang out with them only only when it was to do with work or you were somewhere uh, uh, with them. That was so you got access to those what what I class as the five key major UK punk. Bands, the Pistols, the Clash, the Damned, the Stranglers, and the Jam, uh, and Johnny. And then I would add Johnny Thunders into that, who played one gig in every seven or eight. Uh, that was fantastic. The rest were crap. <laughs> one gig, and that one gig, it was worth waiting, going through, going worth, through the, the, worth the rest. Sure, Shack Redemption, sure, you know, to get to that one gig. <laughs> 
so the love of journalism doesn't go away. And then in 1980, we get Flexi Pop magazine, which launches. I mean, how this kind of comes about from the start of it is like, because you needed a bit of help. And it was like, was it like this East End company who specialised in one-off pop magazines, but also in softcore pornography? Was that right? Well, like, yes. Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we just managed myself and Tim, Tim Lott, my uh, old, uh, old partner, business partner. I'd left Record Mirror, did this PR bit for a while, then I went freelance. And then I ended up, so I would do one interview, so you'd write for five different publications. So you were a PR's dream. You know, they knew that they only had to ring you and they could get it in four or five different publications. Right, they could just syndicate it, right? Yeah, so that happened. I saw, when I, As I said, when I started going freelance, uh, I picked up the gig for, I was the pop, the Scottish Daily Record, which was the sister paper of the Daily Mirror, and it was the second biggest selling paper in the country then. The Daily Star had just started, and I was doing stuff like the Evening News. I had a retainer at Record Mirror, so they would pay me weekly anyway, even if I didn't give them anything, which was great, but I wasn't on staff or anything. And then I was doing stuff for IPC magazine, smash hits and different things, you know. So it was great. You know, I had the pick of everything, but it was too much. And I'll never forget, I went to the Reading Festival in 78 on the Friday night with the Jam and Sham 69. Sham 69, right? Yeah. He was a character, Jimmy. I went there with a guy called Robin Smith who lived in Reading and he were, he was like the heavy metal correspondent on Record Mirror. Never took any drugs, never drank, never smoked. A real oh, a nerd, uh, <laughs> but in a, a lovely bloke. But he never, you know, and, and he loved heavy metal and, and prog rock and everything, you know, the opposite to it. He lived there, so I was going to stay at his house for the night. And uh, I remember... I drove, drove down there, and um, on the Friday, we saw the bands play and everything, and I was backstage all the time. They had, like, these caravan things or whatever at the back, the Sham 69 crew, the, uh, and I'm just getting more and more out of it. I really am. You know, it's, they're, they're giving me everything in these in these, in these these caravans, and I'm just, you know, so... <laughs> so, so and, and, and I, I found myself in the bar, the, this backstage bar, with Paul and Jimmy, and with three of us were sitting talking for ages. I can't remember any of what we were talking about, but it was quite interesting. But I always remember with Jimmy was very headstrong and he had it forthright in his opinions and would come on. And even then in 78, Paul was still quiet and still listening and picking up and understanding things. I always noticed that before. He was always that about. So anyway, by now I'm completely gone. So I said to, I said to Robin, oh, we'll have to go then. He said, well, you're not driving. I said, yeah, I'll be right. I'll be all right. Oh my God. Got in the car. And uh, he said, I'm not far. So we drove. And as we, we drove into where he lived, he drove, and I drove right over a flower, this big rose flower bed in the middle. I drove right over it, got out, gone into the, uh, and then he said, I'll oh, come. They're in bed now, my mum and dad. So as we've walked through the front door, I've projectile vomited everywhere, everywhere. It's, it's this nice house and they're upstairs asleep. And then I, Passed out on the sofa, woke up at six o'clock the next morning, thought I was going to get out of here, got out, backed over the flower bed, drove home, stopped about 20 times vomiting on the way home. And then within two days, I got pneumonia, was really ill. And then I thought this was, you know, a year after doing the freelance stuff. And I thought, Jesus, you know, this is, <laughs> it was just nonstop work. You know, and non-stop traveling and going all over the all over the place. It was, you know, it was ridiculous. So it really got me. So I had a drink with Tim one day, who was still on Record Mirror at the time, and we decided to start an agency, sort of uh, called the Farrington Agency, which was like writing about music for various publications and stuff like that. And through that, 
I met someone I was doing, who was doing these one-shot magazines, uh, and I broke. We think they paid ridiculous and in cash, <laughs> so so he's the right for it. And then they said, uh, "Would you like to do a you know start your own magazine?" I'd never dreamed of anything like Tim had always dreamed of doing a magazine. So we said, "Okay, we'll do it," and uh, came up. With the, with the idea Flexi Pop. And because of our contacts in the, in the business, mm-hmm. we could get a, these exclusive records supplied by everyone and anyone. The first one was Selector, a, a, a revamp, a remix of On My Radio. We put out 140,000 copies. Even though it was like a fanzine. Yeah, we, we didn't know what we were doing, but it was on Sal and Smith's. Where, and we sold about 40 odd thousand. So, you know, that was on sale or return. And we thought, mm, we got very depressed and thought this is no good. And then we did the second issue. We did the jam. I asked Paul and he said, yeah, and he supplied. They, they actually recorded pop art poem, especially for, for Flexi Pop. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? You're getting a, a, an original one-off single oh, yeah. like nowhere else on the front of your magazine. And a remix of Boy About Town that everyone says was better than the other versions, you know, <laughs> the, the original. So he gave us two tracks, put them on the cover, and then I went down. Uh, they were living in Balmoral Road then, Woking. They'd moved from Stanley Road. I went down there on a Sunday. We had a, It was Stars on Sunday, I think. In fact, I've got it. I've got, I've got the original copy here. We um, had Sunday lunch. We went, all went down the pub. There's a picture of us all sitting. Unfortunately, I'm not in it. I wish I'd have been in it now. There's Bruce <laughs> and Rick and, 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 and all the girlfriends and Pat and Nikki and Anne. And they're all sitting out in this pub. It was December and it was freezing, but we were all sitting outside having a pint. And then that one... I think we put out about 120,000 copies and sold about 65,000. So it changed. And that was a really good sale figure to get. But then the best one was Adam and the Ants, the fourth one. He recorded specially for us ANTS. Oh, that's right. YMCA, right? Yeah, yeah. And we sold about 100,000 of those. It was amazing. Amazing. It wasn't us. It was this outfit from you know, East London or whatever that were... Anyway, we eventually we managed to extricate ourselves from that setup and then continued doing it uh, uh, for the next, well, three years it went. How much of it was reliant on that flexi disc on the cover versus the magazine content? Well, it helped, but the magazine started getting... Because the magazine was very different, you know. It was totally, like I mean, so other. irreverent, wasn't it? You, I mean, I Paul, well, Paul Well is a TV critic, for goodness sake. That, that was in, yeah, that was in the... That was in the... Uh, Full tissue, I think, or something. Yeah, that was right. Brilliant. He really liked Flexi Park, you know, and he was very supportive of it. And we always got, you know, as I say, got the the disc. The we do interviews with them. We had that picture of um, of him with Bruce and Rick trying to stop him from speaking. You know, oh, that's right. Yeah, that the, bond, the, the bondage shot, the bondage one, the bondage shot. Yeah, <laughs> and they posed for that. And there's there's it's pulled, uh, it was amazing what we got people to do on that magazine. It really was. And uh, and then we had him as the mad nutty professor. He, that was on our first issue back uh, after we got banned. <laughs> the magazine was banned, seized by the police, actually. For what, uh, for what reason? <laughs> we did, um, well, we had, uh, we celebrated our second issue, uh, second anniversary, issue 24. Uh, it was monthly. Myself and Tim both found ourselves on holiday at the same time. So we left it to <laughs> to the guys there. And there was Hugh Collingbourne, who was the writer, uh, for the, who was doing the writing for this particular thing. Photo stories. Neil Matthews, the photographer, who I've seen down now. And our designer for, the, virtually all the, uh, for all the Flexi Pop was a guy called Mark Mann, who later became Zodiac Mind Warp. And he was our designer, drug-praised designer in the cellar. 
So anyway, they all went out to do a photo. We used to do these photo stories, you know, like you get in in um, IPC teenage magazines, romance and everything. Well, we yeah. did it with pop stars. And we did with the speech different. bubbles and all that. Yes, yeah. right, yeah. yeah. So we did it with pop stars in each issue. And in this particular one, uh, it was a band called The Meteors, you know, the Psycho Billy Band. It was filmed in King's Cross, and it was a version of Mad Max. And... They had the three of them. See, Tim and I were away. The three of them went to a local butcher and got all this awful uh, and all this stuff. And they proceeded to shoot this absolutely sick <laughs> man <laughs> of cannibalism. And it was like evil dead and blood. And there's all this, all this awful and stuff. And it was unbelievable. So when I came back, I was horrified. I thought, and it was just a few days before. And the, all we could do was put us kind of few speech bubbles everywhere and also we had a we had a uh the flexi disc was mark Armand doing a song called discipline and yet on the cover was a big smiling nick haywood of haircut 100 <laughs> and we had inside we had heaven 17 talking about hell and uh, anyway it was really heavy so this grandmother in blackpool had bought it for a granddaughter took it home gave it to her the granddaughter started reading it the grandmother looks over her shoulder saw it and rang the police and they and they uh, they they uh, went, they raided blackpool <laughs> wh smiths and seized copies uh, wow. so consequently oh, wow. we were banned for um, we were banned for three issues I think I've got it somewhere still. I had a letter from W.H. Smith saying, in future, would you kindly refrain from depicting scenes of cannibalism in your teenage magazine? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, that is amazing. (laughs) We never recovered. So that's why our first issue back, we couldn't afford a flexi anymore. Oh, right. So we brought out Flexi Pop without a Flexi, and Paul was on the cover as a Nutty the Mad Professor because he had, uh, it was uh, Respond, wasn't it? The, uh, the, 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 his record company. We had, uh, and so, yeah, it was Tracy, I think, was, was like that. We had him on the cover with the test tubes and the white out of it and everything. He would, he was, he was great. You wouldn't think he'd do that, would you, Paul? I, you know, but he always did for us. Well, that's he what I mean. Cause, uh, like I said earlier, it's like, you know, famously pretty tricky at that point, a difficult, in terms of interview. I think he just maybe didn't like that format. But actually, what you're doing is, and you see this through the Style Council years, where he's yeah. poking fun at himself. Is you know they're, they're pissing about the whole time. Really, it's, it's remarkable. It's funny you should say that about the Style Council because you know the recent Jam Style Council exhibition in Brighton. Well, I wrote the program. Yes, uh, I've got it. I've got there. it. Yeah, here you go. Look. And oh yeah, when the Jam split up, we did the interview in Flexi Pop. Got this exclusive interview. It was great. In that thing, the program, I didn't want to do um, notes uh, that you know everyone. I've seen the last one. Pat Gilbert did the last one, really good. But he covered it. You know, I wanted to do something a bit different. So I did the first and the last Jam interview, which was that one in in the boutique in Carnaby Street, and then the one that we did in Flexi Pop. And then the Style Council. He said, "I never liked the Style Council." Nikki asked me to write the notes, and I said, "Brett, Nikki." I don't, you know, and she gave me that. <laughs> she gave me about two days to do it. In, you know, typical Nikki. And I thought, well, I don't, you know. I thought, so anyway, I thought, well, I'll do it then. Go on then, because I thought, well, you know, the energy bills are not getting any cheaper, are they? I'll do anything for money. So uh, I thought, well, I'll, let me let me listen to the albums. I, I mean, most of those albums, as they say, I, I, I didn't really listen to, you know, I, I think I heard Café Bleu and then didn't even bother turning it over. I thought, well, I, you know, I was jam and that was it. So I had Alexa, you know, Alexa, play Café <laughs> So I listened to every Style Council album that weekend. 
that weekend, I listened to them about three times and they were fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. It was music that I wasn't into at that time. I didn't un- probably, I didn't understand it, but it's so advanced, so mature. I mean, there's elements of Miles Davis in there. There's, it's just so different and so good. And, and so I, it was great. And then I, I went to Nikki had her birthday a while back and, uh, I saw Paul, uh, there and I told him, I said, I never, you know, I never used to listen to, uh, this. And I was telling him all about it. And he was, yeah, he said, Oh, well, thank you. You know, I didn't, <laughs> but I don't even listen. I, I mean, uh, to be honest, after Flexi Pop, um, when the jam split up and they were at Style Council, I never saw the I never saw the Style Council. Never saw them live. Gradually, you know, life gets in the way, and I had kids and, and whatever. And then I got out of journalism completely, and I was publishing magazines at the time. It was money for old road doing that because pop music was so yeah. But then overnight that disappeared. You couldn't sell magazines for love nor money about pop music, you know, mm. and you still can't. Let me ask you a couple of things about Flexi Pop. So a few people got in touch on Twitter, right? So I mentioned about the Flexi Pop, and it's like, well, your memories and stuff. And my God, people absolutely love this thing. I know. Right? I know. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And then people yeah. like, this made me laugh. So Billy Hunt on Twitter sent a photo I must share with you. And he said, I used to make my own sleeves for the flexi discs out of cereal boxes. Sometimes I'd even put myself in as sleeve designer for copyright reasons. <laughs> There's Harbour Mistress on Twitter says, I still have that flexi disc. Talk about that jam one. It says, I always, also want a Polaroid camera, as mentioned on the cover. I oh, had to, she, oh, she was one of them, was she? I had to mime oh, a song right. in a photo booth and send the picture in. I did eat some rifles. Oh, God, yes. I've got that somewhere, that picture. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Farrell on Twitter yeah he said about Paul writing an essay about TV he said he was an addict and an avid Coronation Street watcher yeah he was but, yeah so there's just all these memories coming and actually the guy who made his own sleeves wasn't the only one there were lots of those because you, you know what are you going to put it in and kind of thing but it was just remarkable but also I think you know, it's so irreverent. Like you could win a day out with Kim Wilde, for instance, as one of the prizes. I think on one that's of the right, issues. Yeah. Right? One of the, one, well, that's right. And there was a, and then I arranged for Kim Wilde and and Simon the Bond to have a blind date. <laughs> and I went and I went I went with them on it. <laughs> she didn't like him, but he liked her. I seem to recall. Oh my god. <laughs> But so yeah, no, our flexi pop was just, you know, it was, it got, it got very serious for a while, music, you know, music papers, the music press did, you know. I mean, when you, like you're talking about the influence, you're talking about in those days, the four weeklies, Sounds, NME, Record Mirror, and Melody Maker, was selling nearly about a million between them a week. We've decided to bring our flexi pop to, as a sort of a bit of an antidote to that. And, you know, and we, uh, Smash Hits had song lyrics. So we thought we'd have, uh, uh, have a record, you know, and now they're worth money. I wish yeah. I had kept the money that most of well, them. Well, yeah, a fortune know. on eBay. And you can get, you know, you can read about Paul Weller's nasty habits in issue 11. There's a photo history in issue 17 of the jam. There's Weller in bondage, we mentioned in issue 22. And <laughs> you cover the, the finale of the jam. We should talk on, about that interview with them because Bruce didn't turn up for the interview. No, he was, he was, uh, he was I know so upset, was right? Very, very upset about the whole affair. Yeah, yeah. He really was choked, I think. Well, they all were. I mean, well, so was Rick, you know. Mm. But it was all down to Paul. He, he, it was his decision. They would never have uh, have done it. But, you know, 
It's funny, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you know, I'm helping Nikki Weller with her autobiography, which is quite, it's really interesting. But it's also photo-led, a lot of it's photo-led. So it's opening the Weller fan, the album, basically. Wow. Uh, and it's the closest thing you'll see as well, because it's the same life. They had the same, they were brought up in exactly the same place, exactly the same time. So you get an insight into uh, lots of different things there. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a yeah. fascinating story, actually, because Nikki's, uh, she's had a very, uh, I mean, uh, her life was her brother for a a while, you know what I mean? Yeah, running the fan clubs, the jam, the style council. Well, the style council, she was very, she was much more involved with the style council than because she was still a little bit young with the jam, even though she went to all the gigs and was selling badges and, and stuff like that. She, uh, yeah, it was the style council that she, I think she she probably had well, more of enjoyment because she was working at Solid Bond you know, yes, for that time. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, she's had a very, uh, a bit of a, a roller coaster ride with her brother over the years. It's been interesting. Well, I look forward to reading that. As did, I have to say as well, you know, 77, Sulfate Strip, your first book about this world, and there are others, but people have to dig into this stuff because it's a fascinating read. Because not just well, the one the you jam, held but... up, the one you held up, it's been reprinted. I don't know if you know. I've got that on my Kindle. It's got a different That's cover right. on it. Yeah, yeah, the, you're right. The yeah. Paul Weller, the Paul interview with 77, uh, when I did that, someone asked me to do it, but I didn't have any intention to write it, but it was 30th anniversary or something of 2007. What I did is while I was writing, I thought, wouldn't it be good to ask some of these people who I hadn't seen for 25 years, you know, more of the same questions I asked them the first time I interviewed them. <laughs> That's great. So I managed to get hold of Rat Scabies. That's when I said when we met up in the ship and uh, whatever. Hugh Cornwall and John Lydon. I went to, um, after a lot of messing around, and uh, we spent the day together in Marina Del Rey, where he lives. And then we went back to his house and uh, we got drunk together on Saki. But I wanted to get hold of Paul. And now I hadn't seen Paul. The last time I'd seen Paul up until then was with Mick Talbot at a reception. They just started Style Council. Nothing had come out. And I met them at a reception. And that was it. Uh, and then I never saw him again, Paul, until about about 35 years later. Never saw him again from that day, from that moment. So I wanted to see if I could get hold of him for the book to do an interview. And I tried and I tried and I was getting nowhere, you know, because it was for the reprint. Um, I wanted it. Well, no, I wanted to do it for the first book. And then I went down. He was playing the forum in Kentish Town. And I went down there. I didn't have a ticket. And I went down there and stood outside. After, it was towards the end of the gig I got there because I don't live too far away. I stood outside with these other, you know, Paul Weller fans and um, <laughs> waited for waited for ages to catch sight of him to see if he would and to see. I was desperate for him to get the interview, and then he came out and I couldn't get near him. Oh he no! Came, he came out with Kenny, got in the car, and they went. And apparently, uh, he told me that later he said, "I remember that because I said, was that Barry Kane in the?" Uh, in the thing and Kenny I think said yes but they didn't stop so I thought <laughs> well I've obviously done something to offend offend him so anyway that was it I'd also tried to get an interview some years before that with him and couldn't get it I stood out again stood outside uh, in Kilburn the Kilburn Empire stood outside there for ages no one came out I'd, even I'd left a message nothing so I thought well I've obviously done something to offend him I don't know what you know maybe it was something in Flexi Pop when, uh, <laughs> yeah 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 because that was the last time basically I'd seen him and we had that picture of him Neil took the picture of him with the gun 
the gun yeah. in his mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, we said, oh, been that. Yeah. we said he committed commercial suicide by, you know, so he thought he might as well go the whole way or something like that. And it was like, this is a And I thought, oh, he's obviously taken, you know, oh, what a shame. That was it. And then when I, when they had the jam exhibition at Somerset House, uh, the Flexi Pop book and 77 and the other one and, and 57 varieties were on sale at the Somerset House uh, thing. And they, funny enough, they sold out. So they asked me to bring some more down. It just opened the exhibition. And I'd been to the opening a week before. It was morning and I was signing the things, waiting for Neil to come, my photog- the photographer. So I'm signing and then I look in the distance and I see him for, and, it, and I can see Bruce coming towards me with his um, wife. And the, anyway, that was great. So we said hello, blah, blah, blah. And I said, um, oh, I'll get you a coffee. So we went we went and sat down and I'll get you a coffee. And then I, I waited and I came out with the coffees. And as I came out, someone went, Kaney. And I turned around, it was Paul. Bruce and Paul, quite coincidentally, uh, decided to come down to have a look at the exhibition when there was no one, hardly anyone around. So we sat down, we had a coffee together, a fag, because he, he loves a fag, Paul. And we sat and chewed the fat and everything. And then he gave me his number and it was, it, it, and I said, well, I tried to, he said, well, no, I didn't know anything about it. I said, oh, you did. You must have done. Anyway, he never, I never, I still never got to the bottom of the reason why it only took 35 years to see him again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny enough, since then I've seen uh, we've seen a fair bit, and with Nikki as well, obviously. Because I said to Nikki, you've got to run this book by Paul. I don't want Paul on my back. <laughs> I don't want to fall out of him again, even though I did last time. But, you know. <laughs> but, but then he gave me, then we did do the interview for the, uh, then he, he, he actually got, I got the interview that I wanted. And it was great. And it was great. It was about 30, 40 page long interview at the back of the book. And it was him talking, you know, that first interview that we did in uh, in Carnaby Street. It was magical, really, seeing him that day and talking for, we, we spent hours drinking coffee after coffee. I didn't sleep for days after. <laughs> <laughs> Back like the old days, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It only tastes coffee now. Instead of, instead of a ton of speed, that was... Uh... <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Barry, look, this has been so lovely chatting with you. Um, there are a couple of things, actually. One thing I should ask you about, because John Weller plays such an important part in this story throughout the whole thing. Right. Um, and obviously, you're on the road with them. You're, you know, it's not just the three boys. John was such a key part of all that, wasn't he? It's funny because when they first signed with Polydor, they were so, they, I think, you know, Polydor wanted to get a proper manager they thought they can't have we're not having this and you know we need a proper manager but the band refused you know there was no way they were going to do it and then it turned out that john proved to be the perfect manager he had a very good heart john he was always good to the fans he let you know he let them in on the side to see the sound checks and nicky was telling me they started um he started a football club john in Woking, where, uh, and and that he he would run it with Anne, and, and any kids who couldn't pay the subs, they paid the subs, even though they didn't have any money at the time. And 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 then well, yeah, you could see what it, it, it was a loving family in that respect, you know. And then Anne, were, were all the fans of the Jam that would write to them and or turn up on their they turn up on their doorstep, wouldn't they? And uh, she would give them bacon sandwiches and yeah. and cups of tea. And but John was um, he was the fourth member of the Jam. There's no doubt about it. It was his determination. Where they got in the first place because he would take the tapes. He would sit in record companies all day. You know, he didn't care. He'd finish work and go uh, and go straight to, straight into town and do the rounds of the clubs and the record companies. And he worked really hard. He believed in them. You know, I, I mean, there's a great scene in the book, in Nicky's book, when Paul comes in one Sunday. He used to come around on the Sunday and said, "I'm splitting up the jam." You know, and uh, and John just. <laughs> 
couldn't believe it. He thought it was the most ludicrous decision that anyone's ever made. You know, he just he was he, he, he just tried to make him see sense, but Paul wasn't having any of it. But you know, Paul's been proved right in in in, in so many ways as a result of that. But you no, know, John was um was a great character. He was a great, but he was a professional boxer as well. John. Yeah, Anne Well has been on the podcast and was telling me about that, which was yeah, yeah. really fascinating. To yeah, hear. no, pretty, yeah. There's, I mean, there's a it's book. There's a book of John about John Weller alone. But I imagine there lots is. of those stories will be in Nicky's. But there is a John Weller book, right? It's got to be told. It could be there's called so the best stories. fucking dad in the world. <laughs> 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 love it. Uh, now, look, Barry, I've loved chatting with you. I do have two final questions for you before you go. Of course, yeah, no, no. All right. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Style Council or Solo. What would you go with? Uh, down in the tube station. So many people have said that song, right? It's, it's up there. Wildwood and Down in the Tube Station are the top two songs picked on. For oh, that really? Yeah why, that that, yeah, why that one? Well, because it it was so different. You know, it, it came out of the blue. I never expected that from them. The minute, the very first time you heard it, it had this huge impact on you. You know, the sound of the train and the, and it, the it was so claustrophobic and frightening. And yet it had that beat to it. And it was just phenomenal. It was, uh, you know, there's, that is the word to describe it. And that, for me, the best thing he's ever done. In, in, in the best song he's ever written. I mean, he's written wonderful, wonderful things. But that to me stands out because it was so new and so different, so original. Took, yeah, took my breath away first time I heard that. So the purpose of this podcast, Barry, is to meet lovely people like yourselves. You've got these incredible stories. And I mean, it's amazing. We're still the getting... pants off everyone. <laughs> it's amazing. We're still oh, getting... is that again in the pub? No, don't, don't go in. Don't wake him up. Don't wake him up. Don't wake him up. Don't disturb him. But it's amazing we're still getting these incredible stories on this series. I mean, my goodness me, it's remarkable. But look, if this series ends, when this series ends, the whole point of it, the reason I started it, was to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed in my radio career. It was my course, one big yeah. regret, right? If it happens, what should I ask him? Oh, what should you ask him? It's, do you know, it's funny, I was, I was seeing a thing the other day, because he hasn't spoken to Rick, and they haven't spoken, I think they've spoken once in uh, since they, they split up. But the amazing fact of that is that the last time he spoke to, to Rick, he didn't have any kids, and now he's got eight. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the last time you spoke to someone, and they did, I mean, uh, I'd like to know how much it costs him to... to, to <laughs> Having eight kids, no wonder he's always no wonder he's always on the road, and they're having to record albums all the time. He has to pay for that, I should think. My I God. think he said that himself. Yeah, that's what I've got to get back out. Here. I've got all these mouths to feed. I know, I know. That's uh, so. I'd like, yeah, I'd like to know how much he's getting. Actually, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Does it, it surprise? Because actually, in that last interview that you talked about, they talked about like still being mates. You know, yes, we'll still keep in contact. Oh, I know. That's, fa that's fascinating. Isn't but it? does it surprise you that? I mean, obviously, there were fallouts over merch and things like that, right? But does it surprise you there's been literally no connection whatsoever like that? Well, I mean, obviously, I, him and Bruce are closer again now, but there was a long period of time where they weren't. Well, I'll tell you something about uh, that. I've got a quote here. I made some notes about things I would say. And I've got a quote here that uh, about that thing with, with Rick. Oh, I, I have to try and see if I can find it. It's from the interview I did in in uh, 77, the new the, the Paul Weller interview. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says something very interesting. Oh, is it? Mind you, just scrolling through here's a couple of quotes. John Lydon said of the jam, the jam hated us because we used the English flag differently to them. They tried to use it to hook into the Chelsea scooter mod movement, and that was a dead end. 
So it was about White City and a Who ripoff, and it was fake and it was horrible. It was quite, <laughs> it was quite grotesque, really. Hugh Cornwall said, "My favourite single of 1977 has got to be in the city." I remember seeing the jam perform it on top of the pops and thought. This is amazing. A truly great song that reflected an era. Uh, that was Hugh Cornwall. And Rats Gaines had a good one. He said, uh, the jam were from Woking and my parents were from Red Hill. So I knew that that Surrey belt mentality. The jam were the classic example of a band formed by geography. I've come up with a theory over the years. A bloke who starts out in suburbia and wants to form a band is very limited to the amount of musicians he can unearth. So if he finds someone who's the same kind of age and who's got a bass or a drum kit, then they'll be in the band automatically, even if they don't really cover the same musical ground. That's why a band like The Jam split up. But it's also what makes a band great because they don't have that personal empathy. If you all agree, it sucks. Rick Buckler wasn't interested as well as in being a mod but he went along with it because it was more interesting than being a minicab driver. <laughs> That's interesting because actually Bruce and Rick were older than Paul, right? By you know, they were a few they years. Were. So and Paul has kind of said, "Well, actually, you know, we didn't have that much of a connection just you know at the, age, at the time, the age gap." That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. His actual words were, "I think in all the time we had the jam, well, we were in the jam, we probably only had three conversations." him and Rick. He said we had nothing in common. Funny, oh. isn't it? I hope you get the Paul Weller interview. That'd be great. Oh, well, fingers crossed, man, honestly. Yeah, I hope I don't have to wait 35 years for it. <laughs> he'll, do, he'll do one. One thing I've noticed about a lot of these old, uh, the punk guys, uh, is that not so long ago, they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to talk about those days. It was, food. but as you get as they get older, they start reminiscing more, and it becomes more nostalgic, and they enjoy talking about it. It's funny. I've noticed that they. Yeah. It was impossible to get someone like Paul to talk about the jam much. You know, in the nineties and you know, the noughties, he didn't want to talk about it, but now he does, and it's the same with a lot of them because it's their life, and it's you know, and it, it all comes back to them. It's it's uh, it's fascinating. That something I've noticed. I interviewed Paul Cook the other day. I still keep my hand in. I still, you know, V for Rock magazine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I still do, do stuff for them. I've done the Stranglers and still do the interviews. And it's, uh, it, that's, it's just keep a hand in, really. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there's also that age thing, isn't there? Where, yeah, yes, Paul's, you know, famously looking forward. But actually, as you get older, you do start thinking about some of those bits in the past a little bit more inevitably, yeah. right? I think about those lovely days before I got married. <laughs> <laughs> that was how Dames. <laughs> Barry, thank you so much for your time, man. I thank wish you, you well. An absolute pleasure. Okay, take care. Have it, and I hope you get the interview. Well, that was so much fun. My thanks once again to Barry Kane for joining me on the podcast. Do check out the show notes on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Another one of those guests where you feel we probably only really scraped the surface with these amazing stories, right? Maybe a part two one day. Brilliant stuff. Loved it. Thank you, Barry. Now, whilst you're there on my website, don't forget you can buy yourself a virtual coffee. It all helps to support the podcast. You can even set them up as a little subscription now as well. Save so having to listen to me reminding you, right? Doing exactly that. Over the past 
last week. Let's say hello to you, Martin Morrow. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hi also to Brian G. Hi, Brian. Hello to Mike Steer. Hi, Mike. Hi also to Steve Perry. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. The 829 Club. Hello, hello. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Cheers for your support. It really is appreciated. Head to my website, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You can get involved. Just go to the store there and also check out our merchandise too. If you want to get in touch on social media, you can do Twitter at Weller Fan Pod. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.